You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hello, this is Bob, and I wanted to first thank you for listening to the Non-Zero Podcast, and second, encourage you to, as they say, rate and review us, since we need all the support we can get in the increasingly competitive podcast world. And speaking of support, the third thing I wanted to do is say that one way some people support us is by becoming paid subscribers to the Non-Zero newsletter, which gets them, in addition to all the paywalled print content at Non-Zero, a special Non-Zero podcast feed that has everything the public Non-Zero podcast feed has, plus the Parrot Room my weekly after-hours conversation with longtime frenemy Mickey Kaus, which Mickey and I tape right after our public Friday podcast, and in which we sometimes say things we probably wouldn't say in the public podcast, and in some cases probably shouldn't say even in the parrot. Now, that special non-zero podcast feed will also get you early access to a lot of the conversations I have with various other people, the conversations that go public on Tuesday. And it will get you various other things, like audio versions of some of my newsletter essays and perhaps the occasional impromptu monologue. So I encourage you to head over to nonzero.substack.com and join the ranks of hardcore nonzero readers and listeners. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, Nikita. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Doing okay. How are you? Can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You, as you know, are Nikita Petrov, uh, creative director for The Glenn Show, whose past is intertwined with the past of this podcast in ways I won't get into much. Except to say that you used to work for the Non-Zero Foundation, which uh, puts out this podcast, used to put out The Glenn Show. Um, but more to the point, you are Russian. Uh, you are in Armenia, where you went uh, right after the invasion. You didn't wait for the uh, mobilization some months later, which led to a second wave of Russians going mm -hmm. to Armenia. I wanted to talk with you about uh, various things related to Russia and or the war um including you know how are things in our media there's a whole russian diaspora there now i guess as a result of the war uh how are you being received and uh, so on um what's your take on things in russia your sense of uh what's going on there i also wanted to discuss uh, a podcast uh i just aired that, uh, that i know you've uh listened to or watched uh with ivan kachanovsky a uh a uh, Canadian political scientist from Ukraine, in some ways a, a controversial podcast, wanted to get your take on it. Um, and also, I mean, maybe uh, we could talk a little about the uh, the tensions that Armenia is involved in with Azerbaijan. Not inconceivable that that could lead to war. And I guess if you use your imagination, you can uh, you can think of ways that, that could interact with the Russian war in uh unfortunately synergistic ways i'm really not sure I, I but but anyway uh welcome how you doing i'm doing okay doing okay yeah actually come to think of it i just asked you that and you were doing okay then well anyway i'm glad to, glad to hear that your situation hasn't deteriorated uh 
So how uh, are you uh, are you being well received in Armenia? I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, there, there's uh, that doesn't happen. There isn't a, a welcome reception when a country receives a big influx of people from. another Yeah. Country. Yeah. I hear there are some of that in Georgia, though. I haven't been there myself and reports vary. But Armenia has been extremely welcoming. Um, they Armenians seem to like Russians for whatever reason. I guess there are a lot ties to the country economic and people travel go back and forth and uh mm. there are a lot of Armenia, Armenia was part of the Soviet Union, right? Sure. Though not every country that used to be a part of the Soviet Union has a good relationship with Russia. Yeah, I'm told I'm told that some don't now. Uh but um, yeah, Armenians uh, have been extremely nice in you know in the early months I would have a conversation with somebody in Russia with my mother or somebody and they would worry, you know, how people treat me there and my answer was much better than Russians used to treat me back in Russia. Hmm. Uh, well, maybe that has to do with where you fit into the Russian social ecosystem, though, right? You were... No, no. I'm talking about day-to-day, -day, you know, talking to a lady at the grocery store, passerby. Uh, here, I walk the dog every time. There are at least a few people who will stop and pat the dog and ask me how I'm doing and so forth. I think it's partly just, like, differences between nations like Armenians seems to be seem to be uh nicer people like on the, <laughs> you know it, it, maybe this is superficial like you know when I lived in in America at some point the hi how are you I'm fine Everybody, everybody's great and everybody's asking how are you it's become a little tiresome because there was a little sense of fakeness to it like everybody in America <laughs> Nikita, we're a very sincere people, and I wish you all the best, and I mean that. Uh, but yeah, Armenians, Armenians are very, very welcoming, and uh, um, you know, I couldn't couldn't ask for more. It's been almost a year. There was one time, well, there were two times when I got a negative reaction, and and that's a a drop in a, in an ocean of positive reactions. Do you think the people who stop and pet your dog can tell you're Russian and they're trying to be welcoming? Or is this just a lot of dog petting in Armenia? The dog part, it's definitely driven by the love for dogs. Really? It's really a dog. I should go there. I should I should take my dogs there. It's it's funny. They have a lot of, in, in Yerevan, there are a lot of stray dogs. Um and they're very well socialized and well fed and they're they're mm. just fine everybody's petting them but then the kind of other side of the coin is every once in, like my dog is this small cute harmless thing that it it's bizarre to me that anybody could see him as threatening mm -hmm. uh, but every once in a while there's a person who like runs away and my guess is these trays haven't always been well fed because Armenia has gone through some very, very dark times in the 90s. And I think some people might have had bad experiences with like angry, hungry, violent trays, mm -hmm. uh, you know, internalized the, the fear. But mostly, yeah, these these trays, I mean, there's there should be I, I, my, my wife is uh, like animal. Uh, she works at a charity foundation taking care of dogs and cats and whatnot. Mm. And I keep telling her she should just start like a 
video blog with these trays because there are a lot of them and they're cute and they're uh, interesting and they're they want you to pet them and hang out. She always brings food and oftentimes the dog is not really interested. She's like, mm-hmm. just pet me. I'm I'm well fed. I'm fine. Just let's hang out. I'd watch I'd watch her show if she started yeah. one. <laughs> so she uh so what's your uh do you have a take on things in russia you must i gather a number of your friends have uh have left russia that's the kind of people you hung out with but you most of them yeah the vast majority most of them but you must uh you have you have relatives there uh including i think a brother and um oh he left Where, where is he Currently in Thailand, and uh, I don't know who's, where he's going to go after. Uh-huh. Your mother is there? My mother is there, and I have a couple of friends. And, you know, my uh, wife's parents, her grandmother is in Ukraine, uh, in Dnipropetrovsk. And, um, yeah, so there are some connections both to Russia and Ukraine. But now, your mother, is your mother from Ukraine? Originally, yeah, she's from a village uh, near Vinitsa, but she left, she she moved to Russia, I don't actually know when, Maybe probably she was in her 20s or something, and she was in Kazakhstan before then, she, she traveled. Okay, so what, do you have a sense for things in Russia? I mean, like, I read uh, a public, well, let me first ask the question in an open-ended way, what's your, what's your take on the, uh, things in Russia, how how the war is being received or whatever. Anything you want to say? Pretty horrible what's happening in Russia. Um, Inside, you mean in Russia? In in. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the war, immediately after the beginning of the war, there was also a crackdown in Russia that's continuing. Uh, you know, people can go to jail for calling a war a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have gone to jail for that. And uh, all media, independent media has been banned. And the rhetoric has been like it it was pretty over the edge to begin with. And, and it's been getting steadily worse. It's, you know, let's turn America into nuclear dust and whatnot. Who, and, who is saying things like that? I'd like to have a word with him. I think that phrase is from Kiselyov, who's one of the main propagandists on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but sentiments similar to that have been expressed by numerous people, media personalities and politicians. Yeah. Um, and then even uh, some government people, Medvedev, uh, former oh, president. Medvedev has- is off the rails. Like, we haven't seen him like that. Uh, before the war, he was this kind of, you know, people made fun of him and, and, and he just slept through meetings and now he has a telegram channel and, and it, it, the, the theory that, uh, is accepted most wildly is his drinking a lot because it, it reads like his just at home at night, not sober, just talking shit. Like, like, really, just the language he uses is is what a a low level thug on the street. Mm-hmm. Is. It's so kind of the the Rudy Giuliani of Russia. 
Uh, well, you know, you may not get that reference anyway. Yeah. He, is, yeah, let me ask a question, though. He isn't he still does he s- still have some position in government like assistant head of national security something? I mean, and in which case I would think he would only say he may threaten nuclear war with Putin's authorization. Like I had thought Putin wanted to send a message, but not be the one sending it or something. But you think there's just not that degree of control? I mean. I can only guess. And my guess is there is a game being played by people around Putin. You know, you need to show loyalty and you need to show that you're all the, uh, you know, all in. Uh I think Medvedev is trying to present himself as like completely loyal and I'm going to go to the extent that that I need to go uh, in this rhetoric. And I think Mm. he's overdoing it a little. Or mm-hmm. so things are more repressive there than before. Now, the, the the public opinion polls I read, and there's apparently one poll that's relatively credible that's that's not by the government, and in fact seems to be conducted by some guy who doesn't like the government. I forget the name of it. Uh, according to that, um, on the one hand, most Russians say they support the war. On the other hand, when they when they ask, uh, do you favor continuing the war or uh, moving to peace negotiations? And they make it sound kind of binary, like you wouldn't, you know, it's one or the other. Hmm. Most people say peace negotiations. And I've also heard that uh, you're getting a higher and higher number for people uh, declining to reply at all, which, of course, could suggest that they're really not at all on board with this, but they don't want to say it. Um, do you have any sense for the degree of support for Putin for the for the war, whether one or both are declining or anything? So on the polls, uh, it, it's an important thing you mentioned about people who decline to answer the poll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember I don't know how it is now, but I remember a few months ago, it was, I, I think it was before the mobilization. Um, uh, I listened to an interview with this uh, woman, Katerina Schulman, who's kind of a sociologist, and, and she was asked about these polls, and she said that number of people who declined to answer has always been high, but nowadays there are polls where 97% decline. So you're, oh, you're kidding. You really can't. I don't know, you know what exact poll she was talking about, and uh, it, it's probably not the one you mean, but... Uh, I think that's an important part. Well, that would seem to nullify all, all findings. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I don't. And and even without that, I don't know. I I don't know how you can trust polls from Russia. Who's conducting mm-hmm. them? Uh, how people respond if they choose to respond? I, I wouldn't take that as honest expression of their views. It's more a loyalty test. Like, are you willing mm-hmm. to say into this microphone or whatever, was this person writing things down? Um, who would in in a country where you can go to jail for expressing their own opinion, who would just openly talk about their thoughts unless they happen to align with the government policy? So do you have a way of assess- of assessing the state of opinion yourself? I mean, does your mother say things or... Yeah, it's 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 anecdotal. It's like a friend of a friend said this, uh, mm-hmm. or, or or the immediate circle, or or social media. Um, 
I think there has been a change since mobilization because suddenly the war became more immediate to Russians, right? It's one thing to talk about this thing happening over there. It's another when you or your son or your husband might go there. Um, and I think the there's less support now. And and it's you know partly rooted in fear for your own safety. So it's you know it's not a oh I think this war is unjust now. It's yeah. more I don't want to die. Well, um, and the two intertwine. I mean, you know, maybe, yeah. in, in in the with the Vietnam War, the protesters said very high minded things. On the other hand, you know about uh, justice and exploitation and and or whatever they whatever they said, but. On the other hand, the protest didn't gather much momentum until mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, you know, Americans started coming back in, in body bags and there was a draft. Everyone was vulnerable in principle, although there was a loophole for basically affluent people who could send their kids to college and get a deferment. Um, so anyway, uh, so do you have a view on, I mean, you know, the kind of speculation you get here in america is about well could the putin regime ultimately fall is there you know uh if the war heads south in in a big way and becomes an obvious debacle and they wind up with the, not even having gained any territory and so on um do you have any sense for that for how fluid things are i think they can be but i mean can putin's regime fall how would that happen? There might be a coup. Mm -hmm. um, and in that scenario, who would organize such a coup? And I'm not seeing people around him who would be able to, who have the uh, whatever it takes, courage, mm -hmm. decisiveness, or whatever. I, I mean, there there might be these people. I, I just don't know. Um, the There's been a rise... Uh, we've talked, I think, last time we talked, uh, we mentioned this guy, Prigozhin, who's the uh, owner of the Wagner group, the mercenary group. Mm -hmm. He used to be, like, it was recently, um, he had a court case before the war um, against the uh, head of the Echo of Moscow radio station, which has been banned since the beginning of the war. And mm -hmm. the court case was the guy alleged that this Prigozhin person is the head of the Wagner group. And at the time, he's like, this is libel, and I'm going to take it to court, and he won. And now he's very openly the head of the Wagner Cheveka group, and he's, um, he's becoming like a, a political figure. He makes pronouncements, he mm -hmm. criticizes people, he seems to want more power. He's uh, kind of He's criticizing the the actual Ministry of Defense uh, from the position of like my people are fighting there and doing a better job than you fuckers, and mm -hmm. uh, and that's also like like what he's doing is illegal. Like the reason he originally filed that court case, um, there's a there's a, a whatever it's called article of the criminal code for exactly the thing he's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and now he's like open about it. Like, I'm doing this thing and it's good. And uh, he has the um, 
he goes to prisons and enlists people there to fight in this war. And uh, there's a video of, uh, I guess they got this guy who was in, um, he ended up in, uh, uh, what do you call it? He was captured by the Ukrainian. By Ukraine. And, yeah. the, and then returned, the Ukrainians returned him in a, in a swap. I think kind of knowing they were sending him to his death, probably, right? Because he was a, he was an avowed deserter. I mean, he, he uh, as I understand it, this is the guy that they then killed with a sledgehammer and videotaped it or something. I mean, this is like ISIS level stuff. Yeah. And Prigozhin was uh, that was uh, that was he okayed that or or if he, if not, you know, thought it up. Right. That whole. Yeah. And he later presented there is this guy, Milonov, who is one of the more. um. I don't know what what word to use. Uh, he's a he's in the doom, I think, and he's um, he's like the anti-gay guy, and he's sort of a caricature of a person. And he <laughs> uh, he got a present from Prigozhin. He got a sledgehammer like the one that they smashed this guy's skull with. Wait, that was a threat or an honor? What what, what, what meaning? Given that he posed with a sledgehammer, a sledgehammer smiling, I take it it was not a threat. Mm -hmm. um, but like it's now in the open. It's, it's this thing that they they're proud of. This is this is interesting because I think my sense is, and 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 this surprises some people, but my sense is that in the past Putin actually had taken pains to always be on the right side of the letter of the law. In other words, there, there was an emphasis, like even this whole business of uh, defining this as a special military operation and not a war, that had implications for what he could and couldn't do. And and uh, and I think traditionally, you know, some people are like, well, wait a second, isn't he just like this dictator who can do whatever he wants? And like, well, maybe in some sense, but for whatever reason, my sense is that traditionally, and, you know, Putin has like a law degree, I think. But but traditionally, they've they've gone through the motions of complying with the law. And if he wants to become ruler for life, he has to change the Constitution of the laws and so on. It sounds to me like that is starting to to break down. I mean, I mean, just the very fact that they're now saying openly the Wagner group mm -hmm. is, yeah, it's this mercenary thing. And that's okay, even though you're saying that itself is illegal. Not to mention this business of of okay, we do videos of sledgehammering people to death, and uh, you know, and then it becomes kind of a joke. Uh, is I mean, it would surprise some people to say, to 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 hear that you could even say the rule of law in Russia is breaking down because they wouldn't think that the rule of law could have been a thing in the first place. But my sense is that there's a sense in which it was. I think it's not and, so much the rule of law as the rhetoric regarding the rule of law. Mm -hmm. So, right, they used to go through more rituals and uh, and Putin's rhetoric used to be more, you know, he would he would like to be perceived as a legal mind and, uh, you know, everybody's, every, everything needs to be up to, up to snuff. There's this montage uh, a year or a couple of years ago, they made uh, Medusa is one of those other independent media outlets that was banned and they made this collage of uh, montage of, of Putin saying the phrase something like has to be within the bounds of the law 
And it's just his favorite phrase. He would, mm -hmm. he would use it in, in every possible scenario. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really mean anything. It is like, well, you, you know, there, there was this protest in Moscow and people were beaten and detained, even though the constitution allows for free expression of and, and gathering of, uh, of people. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, yes, the constitution does allow that, but it needs to stay within the bounds of the law. And there's no explanation as to what exactly was out of bounds. Um, but, but when he decided he wanted to rule for like forever or whatever, didn't he actually make some change, get some change moved through parliament? He went through those motions, right? Sure. Didn't he do? Sure. And, and now he's got an election nominally coming up if he mm -hmm. doesn't somehow find a way to cancel it in, I think, two years, right? Now, is your sense that... Before, yeah. Is your sense that the election, I mean, granted, he pulls all this stuff to influence the outcome, including, uh, you know, a lot of control of the media and so on. But is your sense that, that as the way the institutions have operated is that the votes are counted more or less accurately and that all the shenanigans come before the voting? Or no, do you think he could just he could just control the outcome regardless? The shenanigans happen all throughout the process. Okay. So you you try to uh, tweak the results at every step so that by the time you're counting, you don't need to tweak them the, the, mm -hmm. the results too much. But if you have to, then you will. Um, they might throw that away by the time election runs uh, runs on and throw what away? Throw the not throw the, the earlier parts. Maybe maybe just say the numbers. Who's going to question them? Who's going to say yeah. incorrect? Uh, if somebody does, we'll put them to jail. Into jail. Um, I think he has more of a control over the entire process now. Like if we're talking about 2012, there were a lot of observers, like these people who are who are. I was one of them. Uh, you go to the Poland station to prevent. Mm -hmm. uh, shenanigans. I think those are not going to be there uh, this time around. Uh, the actual procedure is carried out in schools, so it's teachers and uh, and you know the head of school who are there with the books who are you know taking the, the signature and giving out the ballot and count the results. Those are all government workers, and they are under pressure. Um, now in schools, there are these lessons, I think they're called conversations about the most important, you know, something like that. And that's political propaganda. That's why, you know, a lesson on why this war is a good one. Mm -hmm. And so by the time 2024 rolls in, um, these people would have been a part of this propaganda machine for longer than they used to be. And in, in in more ways and uh and some people will be filtered out so i don't think the you know getting the numbers right is going to be a problem for him that said elections are always a pressure point and you could imagine like a mass protest movement if not for the fact that all the possible leaders of such movement are and in jail the country or dead or left the country. Or, or isn't it also true that a lot of the kinds of people who would have supported the demonstrations have now left the country because of the war? I mean, you um, you participated yeah. in demonstrations in the a while ago. Yeah. Uh, pro Navalny protests or something. I uh, I forget. But um, pro Navalny pro democracy against 
you know, for pro free elections, there are a lot, a lot of different issues but that, that aligned. And I would think in the first wave of Exodus, right after the invasion, in particular, you lost a lot of the kinds of people who might support, uh, be part of demonstrations. Uh, my sense is, is your sense is that there was a difference between kind of the first the composition, first wave and the second wave. My sense was that the second wave could, would be more likely, my guess was, that the second wave would be more likely to include people who really weren't that politically motivated per se, weren't anti-war per se, just didn't want to be sent to the front, right? Uh, but does that make sense to you? That's one part of it. Yeah, I think there are differences. That's one part. So there's a like larger portion of people in the second wave who would stay if not for personal risks. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the other thing is um, different people have different thresholds for how prepared they need to be to pick up their stuff and leave. Uh, like for me, it was like my job is with Americans. I actually, in order to continue receiving my salary, I had to leave because I wasn't able to uh, get US dollars into mm -hmm. my bank account anymore. Uh, but if you have like a guy, uh, a friend of my wife uh, stayed with us here for maybe a month and he left after the mobilization and uh, he planned to stay here and he couldn't figure out uh, work here. And uh, that was one of the reasons he came back. He wants to leave again, but uh, he needs to save money. He needs to figure out how to feed himself if he leaves. Um, and so he was like against the war from, from the beginning, but he's still in Russia because it's just not so easy to uh, pick everything up and go to a country mm -hmm. where you have no connections and you have no job prospects and whatnot. And um, so there's... That that's another metric, another factor for for how long you stay or leave. But I would think that the numbers that have left, I mean, you hear, you hear like I don't know, a few hundred thousand on. Uh, that, that's the kind of number I get. Is you know, given how kind of specific the demographics involved are, could could have a significant influence on Russia's future. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of tech i would guess the number of tech savvy people creative people you know uh you know the the kinds of you know cosmopolitan and and i'm sure putin is is probably in some ways happy to see him go they're 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 obviously a lot more kind of pro-western uh people especially in that first wave probably western leaning people um but I, I, it's it's kind of sad. I mean, it has, I think, probably implications for Russia's economic future and political future. I think so, yeah. I mean, some people left and then came back uh, because they thought they're going to be okay in Russia and they are more... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of ways to not use loaded language. Like, yeah... Karina and I, we had a, we, we met with some friends, not close. That's friends. your, that's your wife. Yeah, that's my wife. And it's like this um, woman and a man, our age, more or less, maybe a little older, and they're professionals in their fields. And I don't know why the guy forgets why the guy is not concerned about his own, you know, like mobilization, and whatnot. 
maybe he has connections that and, and he's gonna be protected or I don't know. But they are they do think that the regime is rotten, the entire system in Russia is rotten, and they think that the war is inexcusable and all that. But it's a different kind of they're more detached than we are. It was a weird conversation because we would we're like on the one hand, we seem to be on the same page as to you know what the there's no there's there's no dimension of this that they support, but they're fine being in Russia and doing their thing, and they're just kind of put a barrier between themselves and and what's going on around them, and they like grow as professionals and uh, uh, try to do good in their vicinity. Mm-hmm. But then you ask him, like I, the, the guy who works in in the movie industry, and I asked him like. Okay, so, like, but one part of the reason I left is I don't understand what I can be doing in Russia that would be beneficial. Uh, I, I, I can see what I can attempt to do and then be put in jail, uh, but I don't know how, what do you do to improve the situation? So I asked him, mm-hmm. so you're, you work in the movies, what, what kind of movie uh, would be good for the country? And and we just didn't understand one another. He he started talking about like maybe a, a really good movie about the Second World War that's not as the ones they're making now, you know, completely slanted and there is just facts are, are gotten wrong if you do it. And I don't understand how a war movie helps Russia right now. Mm-hmm. Like just just I, I thought I, and I even kind of prompted him, like I thought maybe, you know, a documentary about the Stalin's purges or the 1990s, the roots of this regime, or I don't know, something about uh, mental health and how you shouldn't beat your children. But that's those answers didn't come to his mind. And so what I'm trying to say is there are a lot of people, I don't know how many, but from that wave that left or people who were sort of on the fence about leaving, there is a subset of them who either left and came back or never left at all, but were thinking about it and then decided they're okay, who just kind of narrowed their world to their immediate vicinity and they're just trying to do their thing. And um, and I don't know, There's a, it's a different kind of person uh, who's mm-hmm. also part of this dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, uh, it's kind of grim. Uh, the uh by the way what do you um what language do you speak with armenians do they all speak russian because as a legacy of soviet past almost all of them speak russian uh every once in a while you meet somebody who doesn't but they probably speak english mm-hmm. uh but almost almost everybody speaks russian i think i'm right now it's been like long enough for some of them starting to have this attitude of like, you've been here some time. You should start learning the fucking letters. <laughs> There's a. Are uh, you are you learning any Armenian? I, not really. I'm trying. Like I, I picked up a few phrases and I have a, a sheet with the letters, but the alphabet is insane. It's uh, is it is it is it uh, Cyrillic or it's the, it's its own thing. It's a uh, it's very old. It's older than the Russian alphabet. Uh, it has a lot of letters, and and some of them look the same to me, and uh, and some of them denote a sound 
that would seem the same, like different sounds that seem the same to me. Um, but it's, you know, these are excuses. It's just really, it's, uh, there's not enough time to, to properly sit down and, and uh, go to a class or something. I'm trying to think what, uh, I wrote about this stuff a long time ago. I went to the Soviet Union in the early 90s and did a, a cover story for The Atlantic on comparative linguistics, historical linguistics, because there was this uh, school of uh, thought in the Soviet Union called Nostratics, mm. a, a school of linguistics. Uh, and it's interesting. It, it kind of, I think, began uh, with, uh, as I recall, if I've got this right, Stalin considered himself something of an amateur linguist, I think. But in any yeah. event, he wanted, I, I think he wanted as a lawyer. He, yeah, he considered himself a lot of things, a geneticist. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, I think he wanted to uh, bring all of the Soviet languages, give them a sense of, uh, a, you know, kind of a familial sense and 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 uh, wanted to argue that they were all part of the same language family, that they all had some kind of common origin. And as some kind of byproduct of that, uh, you had you had wound up with a number of Russian linguists who subscribed to an even more ambitious hypothesis, which is that all the world's languages descended from a single language, which mm -hmm. I think is likely to be the case. But historical linguists can't they, they argue about whether the, there's really enough evidence uh, of it. And uh, so that was the that was the story. But I I now cannot remember what uh like what language family armenian would be conventionally put in it's it's not indo-european right like the like uh like english well english has a complicated past of its own but um it, it's uh it's not not indo-european like most of the like the western european languages yeah i don't i, I mean I'm, maybe I it is i don't know but there is, is. A, the, the one unit of information that I can add here is that the guy who invented the Armenian alphabet, Misrop Mashtots, um, is there's a theory that he also developed an early version or something of the Georgian alphabet. I don't think that's hmm. proven, but that's uh, that's an idea. Well, also, one of the jokes about Armenians is that they claim that everything has been invented in Armenia. <laughs> There's like, uh, they're the first country to uh, adopt Christianity as the state religion in, in mm. the history of the world. And uh, I think there's some kind of, you know, a little bit of a beef between Georgians and Armenians that I've seen, uh, I've heard expressed through that lens, like uh, an old Georgian mm. man goes, I don't really like Armenians and and the interviewer asks why and he's like well they think they invented everything they say that mm -hmm. the city was they're talking in Tbilisi in, in the capital of Georgia like they say that the city is founded by them everything is founded by Armenians um, and there's a little bit of that and so maybe I don't know about like the merits of that theory that Mashtots uh, authored the Georgian alphabet as well but at least they're it would suggest they're similar in, Are, in, do the two languages seem similar? Do they sound obviously similar, Georgian and Armenian? Or I mean, I'm wondering if they're part of the same. I don't know. I, they sound different to me, but I don't know uh -huh. either. So, so know. are you? How much publicity is this? Uh, this trouble with uh, Azerbaijan getting? I, I I would think a lot uh, in Armenia. Is that like a daily news story? Events with the tensions with Azerbaijan. 
that's on everybody's mind. I don't really have a sense of the Armenian sort of media landscape. There mm -hmm. isn't a good channel online that I found in Russian. Mm -hmm. uh, and from what I see, the Armenian ones are also not like really well developed, though I, I, I can can say for sure. Um, but it's certainly on everybody's mind. And uh, a bunch of people that I talk to here, you know, they say, you, you said at the beginning of the conversation that uh, this might lead to a war. A bunch of people told me this will lead to a war. It's it's just a question of when. And and they they told me that this is what everybody thinks. And so we're just mm. waiting for the other shoe to drop. There is um, the disputed region Artsakh or Nagorno Karabakh is now under blockade from Azerbaijan. Though I don't know the you know that's like an Armenian enclave within Azerbaijan. <sighs> Yeah, there is like a corridor from from Armenia proper to uh, Artsakh, and that corridor has been blocked mm -hmm. by Azerbaijan. And uh, and I've seen, I don't have good enough resources to have a really clear picture. I I've seen most of what I see is the blockade has been going on for more than forty days, and there's not enough food, and uh, they cut off the gas supply and whatnot, and it's really dire. And then I saw. People like on Twitter saying this is Armenian propaganda and everything is fine and and uh, I I don't trust that latter source. Uh, mm -hmm. I trust it less than the than the early one, but uh, I don't have really mm -hmm. good sources. Apparently, there's also uh, uh, what is the, is the term Azeri for Azerbaijanis? I mean, you, uh, anyway, whatever it is. There's there's an enclave of that kind, I gather, within Armenia, although maybe that is, I think maybe both of these are technically Azerbaijan's, well, I don't know. Anyway, I gather there's a certain kind of uh, symmetrical situation. You have, you don't, you're not hearing much about that? I don't, I don't know about that. Huh. Um, so, uh, uh, but, but anyway, you, another thing I've heard is that the fact that Russia is not keeping this under control is a testament to how Russia's influence is declining as a result of it getting overextended in in Ukraine. Um, although I've also heard that Russia needs to cozy up to Turkey, which supports Azerbaijan. It's ironic because Turkey has given some weapons to Ukraine, but Turkey is in a lot of ways providing an economic lifeline to Russia or something. And so Russia, so so Armenia should not expect Russia to come to its aid, even though Russia, like it, is the Orthodox Christian uh, in the Orthodox Christian tradition, unlike Azerbaijan. So in days of yore, you might have expected more more sympathy, right? Yeah, there's um, a, I've heard both theories. It's like nominally the role of Russians there is to be the peacekeeper and to just keep the two parties uh, not fighting, not escalating. But the theory I've heard is um, the reason there's there's been an escalation is Putin really doesn't like the government in Armenia because it's the guy came to power through a revolution. It's you know it's a story that's that's common, uh, mm -hmm. a popular uprising and uh, and a fairly peaceful revolution, and um, 
he's more pro-Western, certainly more pro-Western than the previous guy. And, and there may be a play where, where Russia allows Azerbaijan to take Karabakh and that causes a prize in, in Armenia because there are already, already protests and, and uh, a lot of people see the current government as not doing enough or not doing the right thing and uh, not fighting mm -hmm. properly. And uh, if there are uprising, uprisings and the uh, the current government falls apart, then Putin may move in or there's one senator I've heard is all hypothetical. It's just, you know, people talking about what might happen. But uh, this guy, uh, an American who has been living here for a long time as an Armenian wife, and children. Um, he painted the scenario to me where Putin allows Azerbaijan to take Karabakh, there are prisons here, the regime starts to fall apart, and then this is a way for Lukashenko to play his part without... He's, getting... in, Belar He's in Belarus. Right. This is the, the leader of Belarus, who Putin has been trying to, or at least that that's what it seems like, Putin has been trying to get more support and cooperation um in the war like get belarusian army uh to take part mm -hmm. and has been resisting that and maybe that's an out for him like when shit goes down in armenia they can get or this uh union armenia kazakhstan belarus russia under that mm -hmm. uh label get belarusian troops here to get control of this territory and then Lukashenko can say I've already done my part I don't need to uh to be active in Ukraine this is all you know conjectural this is uh, speculations but it's indicative of this broader view that Russia Russia's role in uh in between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan is not just to keep peace it's also to use the situation to get, gain more power in this region so Armenia is already formally part of some uh, security structure. That's a military. That's that's some kind of security pact. These are the forces. And, and is it also when it, Russian is, forces uh, went into Kazakhstan recently? Mm -hmm. was, it was last year, I think. I think time time has been weird lately. But um, yeah, when there was a danger of uh, an overthrow of government in Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. Russia moved in and secured the the situation and uh, and then went back. And that was on paper, that was not Russia. That was this security alliance um, acting on behalf of the current regime in Kazakhstan. Well, this makes it kind of really weird that Russia wouldn't uh, be on Armenia's side in the Azerbaijan thing, because Azerbaijan's not part of the security structure, right? Right. And a lot of Armenians are saying we should leave that. Uh, that I would think, yeah. Time. I mean, what's it for? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, wow. You know, I was trying to think, you know, I was listening to a podcast about this. And uh, I was, uh, for the first time, thinking, wait a second, is this the way the Ukrainian war gets bigger and more out of control, like through this outlet? And it wasn't that, you know, because traditionally I've been like everybody else thinking, Wait a second. It's like NATO gets involved. It becomes, a, you know, or nukes get involved, you know, kind of the obvious uh, forms of escalation. 
and expansion. And 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 I started wondering about this uh, as, a, you know, like, you know, it's like when you read like a history of any of these great wars and how they start, it's mm-hmm. not infrequently some weird thing that wasn't on the radar screen that takes it to the next level. And uh, but on the other hand, I couldn't think of an obvious um scenario but but uh but on the other hand i can't rule i can't rule it out i don't know i had the thought when pelosi flew to taiwan and i read that news it was like 4 a.m or something couldn't fall asleep and uh, you know my mind was in this kind of twilight zone of half asleep half awake and Mm -hmm. i saw the tweets or whatever about pelosi flying to taiwan and uh china was doing these military exercises as a response to that. And I thought maybe the Ukrainian war is not about Ukraine at all. Maybe it's the first, you know, domino in a world war that just has many different fronts. Yeah, but you you do think that Russia's point of view, Ukraine is began as being about Ukraine. Or do you think that Actually, Putin has some grand design because I don't think he's in a position to execute a grand design at this point. I mean, yeah, if it yeah. Uh, if it, if it was part of a grand design, something went wrong because I don't think he wants NATO to get involved in this if, if he's smart. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it certainly, it's changed. You know, his plan, whatever it was, wasn't what's going on now. I no, think. that that's safe to yeah. say. Um. And what his vision for the future, I don't know. I, I Intuitively, sort of like emotionally, I do have this sense of, like when COVID started, I think a lot of people felt, and Putin, one of them, felt that this is a pivotal moment in history. And... And whatever you you plan to do with history, you might as well start doing it now. There's like hmm. rules are are falling apart. Uh, the different approaches that you used to do used to adhere to are now set aside. Um, it, I mean, I don't know. It's it's not it's not very. I don't have like a, a coherent rational explanation of that view. But it's like. You know, there used to be this thing about protests in Russia and uh, and and whether people are allowed to gather or not, and people would argue and whatnot. And then COVID happened, and you can just say no, just no gatherings except for the ones that mm-hmm. we decide to. Like a lot of things, like the the order that used to be there, morphed and changed, and and part of it fell apart, and um, and borders closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a moment when uh, early in the pandemic when the Russian borders were not closed yet, uh, but European countries were closing them. And we were driving down uh, St. Petersburg and I think we were going like to a grocery store to stockpile food because maybe there's not going to be food and whatnot. And I had this weird feeling. I told uh, my wife or then uh, girlfriend, I said, isn't it weird that a few months ago, one of the fears or concerns that we had is that Russia will go full Soviet mode and impose an iron curtain. And that was something we, like that was one of the worst uh, developments that we could envision in the future. And now, as good liberals, we're supposed to criticize the government for not closing the border soon enough because there's Mm. this 
disease going on. And it's just mm-hmm. weird that that you're supposed like you were rooting for one uh one thing and then you're supposed to be rooting for the exact opposite just because it's in a different framework, different context, different narrative. Yeah. The uh it's uh I mean there's a version of this in America, of course. People uh well, on maybe on the far right and maybe on the right and the left who think that, you know, I mean, the extreme version is the is the pandemic version, right, where this is all a hoax designed to get, uh, you know, to expand state power. Uh, the more moderate, relatively moderate version of it is that the state is is really actively exploiting the situation to. But you get this. You get this here, too. Um, the uh, I, I wanted to ask you about this, uh, this conversation I had with Ivan Kachanovsky. I haven't talked to you about it at all. I know you, you had a chance to take a look at it. So he's this Ukrainian guy. And I should say, I'm we're taping this the day after it went public. Uh, so I haven't fully assimilated the blowback that I think I'm, I'm likely to get for it. Uh, there are a lot of dimensions of it. And but 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 uh you know, he's a guy who grew up in Ukraine, has uh, a thick Ukrainian accent to show for it, uh, came to America, studied uh, under actually a very eminent American political scientist named uh, Seymour Martin Lipset. I, I don't know if that was his uh, advisor, but they collaborated on published work. Um, and, uh, and and so yeah, now he's at the University of Ottawa. Uh, and he uh well definitely provides a distinctive perspective that's different from what you're getting in mainstream media the most controversial thing he says is that uh on the, during the Maidan revolution most of the protesters were shot by snipers from these far right groups that were you know allied with the protesters for purposes of 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 you know causing trouble for the of uh, protesting the government's policies and and maybe uh, and certainly in the case of the far right groups wanting to overthrow the government and 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 probably that was a lot of the more liberal protesters were fine with that as well. But anyway, he's saying that the the more extreme elements of the coalition, uh, it, uh, the anti-government coalition, actually were part of a false flag operation. And you know, I I I don't. I don't casually bring on somebody who has a theory that's going to get a lot of blowback. And if you want, I can talk about uh, how I, I thought about, uh, you know, doing that, uh, the propriety of doing that. But uh, but I'm mainly curious about about your take as a as a Russian who knows something about Ukraine. Um, uh, he, he has. A number of interesting things to say. The rest of them less controversial than that, but but some of them certainly not mainstream. Um, what was your what was your reaction? It was difficult to listen to. Um, I don't know if he's right or wrong. I I think I agree with you. You said uh, in that conversation that you may be right, you may be wrong, but it certainly seems like there should be a. a something that a number of Western publications really try to properly investigate and and Mm -hmm. write their definitive take on it. And we're not seeing that. Um, 
I mean, we've seen a little of there. There is a New York Times video assessment that he talked about and was dismissive of. Mm-hmm. But. But, yeah, my sense is, I mean, my sense of the Western media's coverage of the whole war mm-hmm. is that, you know, we think of ourselves as being on one side and you get the kind of coverage you get when that's the case. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it is not unusual. This is the way information processing works during wars. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't expect his thesis to get a lot of vigorous investigation uh, from Western media. Now, you're, you're saying that particular part of the conversation was difficult. Uh, the entire conversation was difficult for me for like personal reasons, because like you're I, I'm sure you're going to get some comments for that conversation calling you a Putin apologist as. Oh, uh, I already I already get that. But right. uh, for for much more for saying, you know, much. Uh, more main, closer to the mainstream things, right. but yeah, and, that that. I, I mean, if of, you even say that you think NATO expansion made this war more likely, you get that. Sure. But but go ahead. Sure, it, and it's not. You know, I agree with you that this is not a. Usually, this is not a very um, substantiated and 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 rigorous, uh, you know, critique of you're just trying to figure out what happened. But listening to that conversation, I felt like a Putin apologist. Like I was criticizing kind of myself. There was a voice in, inside my head being kind of annoyed with me even, you know, trying to learn these details and 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 think so about... So you mean you felt... Wait, now I'm confused. You... you, you uh... It's sounds like, like there's a complicated network of voices in your head. What, 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 which one is the Putin apologist? Well, it's like you can look at many, many different causal chains that led to the war, and you can point to different parts of the Ukrainian uh, political landscape as problematic. You know, it, it, it's not like it used to be this beautifully functioned democracy with strong institutions and then Russia rolled in. And you can talk about whatever the nationalist or neo-Nazi roots of the Azov battalion or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all of those things, like if you're a social scientist or a historian or a journalist uh, studying this, you need to be looking at these things and need to be uh, figuring it out. Mm-hmm. But I, as a private person, listening to that conversation felt whatever the details are, we're still in a war that didn't have to happen. And mm-hmm. and it's Russia who invaded the country and it's Russia who's bombing these cities. And there are people who die or lose homes or, and, uh, you know, civil infrastructure is destroyed and, uh, and whatever the situation was in Ukraine before that, um, it, it doesn't excuse this. It doesn't. And so, and, and I understand yeah. when you're having this conversation, you're not excusing the invasion. And I don't think he is. Mm-hmm. I don't think he is. Yeah. But, but it is difficult to listen to because it, for me, yeah. because, because no, it's, it's, it's a visceral reaction. Yeah. And that's what's interesting to me. I mean, I will say, uh, you know, I was happy to hear him kind of, well, for example, with with a neo-Nazi thing, mm-hmm. you know, he 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 noted the fact that there that these somebody like the Azov Brigade has neo-Nazi roots, whatever. And I said, so that's what Putin is is referring to when he talks about like denazification. And, and, and uh, Kachinovsky said, yeah, but 
but but but that's Putin propaganda. Because right. the fact is, there is not a strong neo-Nazi element within the government. So that's just yeah. propaganda. There were and several times the element within the Russian uh, military, and and I mean, depending on how you define neo-Nazi, right. you can say that the entire rhetoric of the Russian propaganda machine is is yeah. Is, well, it's is, like when is, you're when you're smashing people's heads with sledge, yeah. sledgehammers and circulating the videos. What does it matter whether you call yourself a Nazi? I mean, th yeah. this is this is the kind of thing that uh, you know it's it's in that realm in terms of in terms of badness a, but the guy ragozin I, I forget what his position is now he did play a part in the war he went to the donbass as some kind of a government representative and before that he was the head of roscosmos the uh space agency and there's video of him as a younger man doing the the zig uh zig Heil salute and this is who this is this is ragozin uh-huh uh, russian there's so and and if you're talking about you know there are photos of uh some member of the azov battalion and and you see like a military patch or something with a nazi mm -hmm. there's that on the russian side too and i think mm -hmm. you I forget the name of the woman you talked to i think she's french and mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. um, uh, studied Russian. I, I thought she she had a very like comprehensive view on uh, of, of the Russian politics and Russian society, and she made the point is uh, in these mercenary situations, you know, volunteer mm -hmm. military groups, you're just gonna get some neo Nazi. Mm -hmm. Like that's mm -hmm. the, the the two are aligned on in in some way. There is you know if if you're the kind right. of person who looks for an enemy to fight against and the camaraderie of your brethren fighting the good war and whatnot, there's going to be a portion, uh, you know, that, that appeal, the appeal of, of neo-Nazi ideology shares some qualities with the appeal of the life of a warrior. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you know, I mean, people there. the thing about Kanchanowski is he struck me as the kind of person who would be happy to point all that out. I mean, there were a number of times I think so. when he, like, for example, I mean, one of my, you know, uh, you know, this this uh, shady seeming conversation with Victoria Newland, uh, the people are probably familiar with her, where it sounds like she's plotting with uh, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine about who's going to going to run the government once we uh, get rid of Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president. And he he emphasized that actually that's not the context of that conversation. The, the context of that conversation is uh, that there was at that point going to be a deal where Yanukovych accepted a new leader of parliament. He remained president, and they were talking about who the leader of parliament should be. Now, I personally am still uncomfortable with my government more or less selecting the person, okay? I don't like that degree of American involvement. Still, that's an important distinction, and it hadn't been entirely clear to me until uh until pretty recently i mean i started picking up on that before this conversation but anyway the point is he strikes me as somebody who's interested in the truth uh and and i i know exactly what you mean when you say but it kind of rubs me the wrong way emotionally and i think because because of the way in human psychology uh it, it, you know assigning causal responsibility for things talking about 
how American actions or Ukrainian actions or whatever might have made war more likely tends to be intertwined in human psychology with assigning blame. Um, For that reason, it it can be kind of painful to hear this stuff. But uh, leaving aside the question of whether it's right or wrong, um, it, it can just be painful to hear and you feel yourself fighting it. I just feel we have to get over that. It's like a threshold our species has to cross if we're ever going to reach a time when there is no war, however painful it is. I mean, separate from that, I think uh, uh, American foreign policy, the American foreign policy establishment needs to reckon with things in American foreign policy that have been ill-advised. And it's not doing that. And one reason it's not doing that is precisely because during wartime, the psychology sets in. It's almost painful to think about clearly. But for that reason, I think we have to uh, think about it clearly. And I think one thing that involves is uh, giving an opportunity to people like Kachinovsky, who seem to be people of good faith, to uh, trot out even controversial theories that may be wrong. I haven't looked into the into the false flag theory uh, enough to know who's right and who's wrong. I did do enough due diligence to be confident that there has not been uh, a definitive analysis. And in fact, one thing I did is go to the, the, uh, I found a piece put out by the Atlantic Council, which is sometimes referred to as NATO's think tank, cynically. Maybe it doesn't deserve that, but certainly, you know, it gets money from Western governments and so on. And they are, you know, on the side of, you know, kind of the conventional American uh, foreign policy establishment side. And there was a piece there kind of complaining that Zelensky, that the Ukrainian government still hasn't done a definitive investigation that gets to the bottom of this. And uh, so, oh, and you know, and I looked around and, uh, you know, all I think is that uh, there is enough uncertainty about what happened that day still, so far as I can tell, that uh, people with... Uh, Conflicting theories should be allowed to have their day in court. And it's it, it the fact that it's uncomfortable now during a war is, to my mind, all the more reason you have to give these people a stage, okay. uh, you know, a, a pedestal. I think uh, I would have been less uncomfortable if I was not Russian. Because hmm. a part of this uncomfortableness comes from you're right. So maybe something, you know, that there you can critique the American approach. Maybe maybe America contributed to this. You can critique the uh, approach of the Ukrainian government, and, and maybe they contributed to this. But surely Russia is the force that that made the biggest contribution, right? And so for me to focus, to look into, to spend time looking into these other areas feels like uh, you know one one reason a russian might do that is because they don't want to look at their own country's fault in this mm-hmm. and i think if i was american or ukrainian i would I, I think it would be uh i would feel better about trying to look into my own backyard and 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 trying to figure out you know what feels like you know, closer to my responsibility, though, the, the question of responsibility of 
an individual or a private person is also a complicated one. Like, I don't know what I should have done differently. Like, I, you know, I wasn't at those meetings. I wasn't at any table. Uh, mm. what, what, what was I supposed to do for this to not happen? Or what am I supposed to do doing now? This is, this is a more important question. And I don't have an mm -hmm. answer to that either. And so I think there's another part of it. Like, I sometimes feel this. When you start looking at stuff, and you, or you end up in some conversation where it's, you're trying to analyze different parts of it, and it starts to feel like you're, is this your pastime now? Like, this is not consequential. This, you're not, uh, after this conversation, you're not going to go and do something about it because you don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so even even having these conversations sometimes feel you, you feel icky because there you know there are people dying and you're not doing anything about that and instead you're talking about it. Um, yeah, it's it's just a human thing. I'm I'm not I'm not saying this is you know wrong. It we all would benefit, yeah, from from understanding the situation better in in a more comprehensive way. But but there is this shitty feeling. Uh, yeah. When you're when you're you feel powerless and 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 so instead of exerting some kind of influence, you're just talking about stuff. Yeah. No. Uh, I know what you mean. Um, and you know, we're all. I, I mean, I I I think of having people like him on the show as being a way of trying to do something about the generic problem. Uh of war more than about this particular right. war at this point but you know kind of just insisting that at some point we quit getting sucked into this this uh the psychology that makes people so uncomfortable uh with uh with even hearing uh alternative views on things like this you know and i, and I should say you know there was uh after uh, first, this was made available to paid subscribers in the non-zero newsletter uh, before it was, went public, which was yesterday. And uh, uh, one of our commenters, a paid subscriber to the newsletter, said he was there. Uh, Kachanovsky is wrong. Uh, he was there on the Maidan uh, uh, judging uh, uh, by his... Uh, Anyway, I won't get into. I mean, by his email address, he 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 uh, he he could be Estonian. He may he may be a journalist. So it's somebody sound like somebody should be taken very seriously. Uh, obviously, this uh, kind of filled me. With, you know, like 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 fear. Like, did I miss something obvious? Should, should, uh -huh. Is this theory so crazy that it shouldn't even get a public hearing? Right. But when I looked at what he said, I sent it. I sent you know what he said to Kachanovsky. He replied, commenter elaborated kachanovsky replied to elaboration and i'm back to feeling like uh no it, it it isn't yeah i have not seen evidence that it was just a that this is just some kind of crazy theory that doesn't deserve uh uh any airtime at all uh but you know uh, night is young we'll see what else uh comes out and whether uh uh you know people bring evidence uh to bear that uh that proves him wrong or something. If if it does, I'll try to I'll try to be uh, uh, forthright about it. Um, what if he's so, right? the consequence of of that? What's that? What if 
uh, Kachanovsky is right, what is the consequence of that? Like, how does that change the way we relate to this war now? Uh, I mean, as I said, I think of, uh, of bringing, I think the answer is probably not much, and it probably shouldn't. I mean, my view is Russia violated international law by invading a, a sovereign country. I take international law very seriously. So you want Russia not to be rewarded for this. Um, at the uh, uh, that takes care of that. Uh, at the same time, um, I think it's important to look at uh, things in American foreign policy that made this whole mess more likely than I think it had to be, uh, even though we are not the ones who violated international law. And and then again, more generically, I just think we have to try to, uh, you know, there ha needs to be a kind of evolution of human psychology in a certain sense mm -hmm. that uh, it, it, this is this is. This is something I probably shouldn't even talk about without thinking it through more clearly. But 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 uh, uh, the sense in which I just think we need to uh, resist the kind of football game mentality, even during war, if that makes sense. I, right. I don't I don't know. I mean, I think as long as we succumb to that and as long as every time there's a war, anyone who tries to complicate the narrative is is deemed an apologist for the other side and expelled from polite discourse. I think as long as that dynamic is in play, we will not get to a world without wars. And we really have to do that, not just because wars are bad, but because more and more there are these global problems uh, that we need to solve together. And they, I think they go well beyond climate change uh, and uh, have to do with various kinds of weapons of mass destruction and other things. And so... Uh, that's my view, but I agree that like at this point, this thing is just in motion, this mm -hmm. war mm -hmm. and, and it would be bad, uh, if, if, if Putin wound up with positive reinforcement, mm -hmm. like, uh, uh, you know, at the same time, I don't think it's realistic to expel, uh, Russia entirely from, you know, all land they've taken, including Crimea and so on. So it's a very complicated situation, but, uh. I don't know. Um, anything else you want to say? About anything? Um, well, a stray thought on the on the nationalist involvement in Ukraine. I don't, I, I don't know if that's uh, pertinent, but uh, comes up in my mind every once in a while. Like, I remember when before the war, when Maidan happened and people were talking about the nationalist involvement as like a bad sign uh, in in uh, the situation in Ukraine, my thought you of mean the, the the kind of uh, far right nationalists in yeah, Ukraine? Well, just just yeah. the fact that there were these you know the the right sector and 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 all mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I. Uh, I sometimes thought, well, maybe this is the reason they managed to to accomplish what they accomplished because the nationalists they tend to be more organized and more militant and and more you know willing to take risk and whatnot. And I remember in the history of the Russian protest movement, 
there was this time, you know, end of 2011 to, you can draw the line in different places, but say until 2013 with the annexation of Crimea, maybe a little earlier than that, it ended. But there was a time where there was, there was this anti-Putin pro-democracy movement that included everybody from all sides of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was at these protests. And I don't like nationalists. I don't like, certainly not, you know, neo-Nazi types. But they had a function uh, because these liberals, they, they don't know how to, you know, secure the perimeter and be and, and put people on different mm -hmm. positions to watch which direction the right police mm -hmm. is going to come from and organize people uh, in a kind of tactical uh, sense on the street. Um, in Russia, I, <laughs> I went... I went to America after uh, some of these protests in Russia that I was part of, and then I attended, kind of as an observer, uh, one of the BLM rallies. And I was thinking, God damn, these people know how to chant. Russians <laughs> at these protests is just, you know, I want to chant. I want to to uh, you know get on the same page and express our uh, mm -hmm. opinion boldly and whatnot. It just doesn't work because, you know, in America, it's like, I don't know. There ain't no power but the power of the people and the power of the people don't stop. And then the other guy goes, say what? And the crowd, you know, yeah, yeah. there is a written to it and, and it picks up the spirit of the protesters. And in Russia, it's like, Svobodu palit zaključonem. And nobody chants it. And if you yeah. do, you feel weird. Nationalists, on the other hand, a lot of them are football fans. A lot of them know how to chant shit. Um, yeah. So anyway, so their at the time in Russia, I felt that their participation, yeah, had a function. Mm -hmm. And and apart from that, I mean, if what you are after is a system of uh, you know, how governments change and there's going to be an election and then whoever wins that election is going to be the president, not the guy you like, but whoever right. gets the most votes. Well, there is a nationalist attitude within the Russian society. These people should also be represented. And I think they wouldn't, just like in Ukraine, the, there were these far-right groups that were a part of the Maidan. They were not numerous they didn't get like their party to uh yeah I, I think the the biggest numbers they got were single digits mm -hmm. they didn't have mass support but but they should get whatever representation that they uh well yeah but that's different from saying that their use of violence Sure. Uh, sure. Is legit uh and and there's no doubt that there was some degree of use of violence by the far sure. right uh, in that uh, I mean, the other thing I would say is like, yeah, it might not have worked without the nationalists, but it's far from clear uh, clear to me that the overthrow of Yanukovych in Ukraine was a good thing in retrospect. I mean, it was it was it was an overthrow. He fled right. for for fear of his life. He right. was democratically elected. It was a non democratic uh, transition. It's funny. I saw the Wall Street Journal in a reported piece, not not an opinion piece, refer to it as a democratic revolution. And I was wondering, like, what 
how do we know? I mean, uh, maybe there were polls afterwards that showed that most Ukrainian people supported it. And that's what they mean. I guess that's that's kind of legit. But in any event, the, the consequences of the Yanukovych overthrow are uh, seem to me uh, to, in retrospect, uh, not have been entirely benign. But I take your point. Uh, I mean, first of all, any mass movement is a coalition almost of different uh, entities. And for better or worse, nationalist spirit uh, is sometimes critical. I mean, uh, Navalny is more of a nationalist than some people realize, although not a not a neo-Nazi nationalist, but a little bit more of a, a nationalist than some people realize. Um, so anyway, that's uh, it's all complicated. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about that. We should say about you that that uh, you put out the Psychopolitica newsletter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on Substack, and people can uh, subscribe to that. Uh, and we donated $3,200 last year to buy humanitarian aid for Ukraine from really? subscriptions uh, at Psychopolitica. That's great. And uh, this is not like the Steve Bannon uh, build the wall operation. In other words, the money donated actually went to where you say it went to. Well, I donated it to a fund that I heard is legit. Okay. (laughs) As long as you didn't buy a yacht with it or whatever, whatever uh, Bannon did with that money. Um, And uh, you're on Twitter at Nikita Petrov. Yeah. Okay. And I am at Robert Ryder on Twitter. And, uh, And thanks for taking the time. Sure. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll probably check in down the road. Sounds good. Uh, all right. See you around.